is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. James, I'm um, <clears throat> delighted to have the invitation to speak uh, on this occasion and to be back at the Refugee Studies Centre where I've spent quite a lot of time over the last the past few years. Um, I want to talk to a subject that's got me into a little bit of hot water with UNHCR, um, but I think it is a very important one and I think uh, UNHCR is trying to find a better way to do part of its job, which is to help states reach good decisions on refugee issues. And I hope that as a consequence of some of what I have to say tonight and some of what you may have read elsewhere, uh, those of you who consider yourself in the now fashionable term ourselves stakeholders in the business of refugee protection will take up the invitation that UNHCR is putting out to offer your comments on guidelines and on other, indeed on other issues relating to the protection of refugees where you think UNHCR needs some help and I think very often it does not the least because of the very serious resource constraints which the organisation faces in the protection area uh, and the price it's paying for having ignored protection uh, during the, the 1990s um, in favour of pragmatic solutions to humanitarian situations so the subject I'm looking at today is what UNHCR calls its Guidelines on International Protection. Specifically, I want to look at the 11 or so which have been published since 2002. And more to the point, though, I want to consider the methodology and the process which might be uh, most appropriate for those that are yet to come. Now, as many of you will know, you've probably seen some of these guidelines, those that have been published so far, I haven't put up a complete list, but deal with uh, gender, gender-related persecution, amongst other things, membership of a particular social group, cessation of refugee status, the internal flight alternative, exclusion, 
and refugee claims arising out of military service. Now, the purpose of these guidelines, and I put up here a quotation from Volker Turk, who is now the Assistant High Commissioner for International Protection, writing back in 2003, and that period, as we'll see, is actually a seminal period, uh, he, he wrote that the purpose of the guidelines is that, like, to take stock of the law and practice, to consolidate the various positions taken, and to develop concrete recommendations on the way forward to achieve consistent undertaking, understandings of various interpretive issues. Now, these guidelines on international protection need to be distinguished from another set of papers that UNHCR periodically puts out, which it terms eligibility guidelines. And these are usually very refugee and specific and asylum speaker group specific. So there will be eligibility guidelines on the processing or treatment of Iraqi asylum seekers or asylum seekers from Afghanistan or the Central African Republic. And as you might imagine, they are much more rooted in the facts giving rise to flight. So they're very much focused on specific groups identifying the circumstances of flight considered against the background of established principles. So they don't tend to deal with legal issues save insofar as they may be or may not be applicable to particular fact situations. The guidelines on international protection are much more general in nature and in the form of what we could call interpretive assistance. They work, and I think this is an important point to remember, they work from the terms of the refugee treaties, and we'll see why in a moment. And they ideally are intended to harmonize or encourage concordant decision-making in the processes of refugee status determination among the 147 states party to the convention or the 1967 protocol. Of course, not all of those states do actually engage in the process of refugee status determination. Some simply accept refugees, others simply ignore the fact that refugees might be uh, present in their territory. Now, 2002 is an important date, but I think it's also helpful to know that guidelines actually do have a long history. And even the International Refugee Organization, which operated from 1946 to the early 1950s, published what it called a Manual for Eligibility Officers with case illustrations, which sought to explain what it called in those days the logical processes in determining who is the concern of the organization. And even in the time of UNHCR, we see the origins of this sort of approach. During the 1960s, UNHCR, under the direction of the then legal advisor Paul Weiss, whose name also, I'm sure, will be known to you, issued a series of confidential, let's say, internal eligibility and legal bulletins. And the purpose of these, in those days there were not many national procedures for determining refugee status, the purpose of these eligibility and legal bulletins was to assist UNHCR staff, as Paul Weiss put it, in their efforts to achieve a universally favourable interpretation of the 51 Convention. Now, UNHCR has an interesting role in relation to the treaties and an interesting role in relation to states and their application of the treaties. According to its statute, I think it's always worth remembering paragraph one, its primary responsibility is to provide international protection. 
I think it's also helpful to recall that this is a mandate that comes from the General Assembly. I think people often forget that that's where the mandate comes from today, but it is a, a source of authority which I think is considerably, of considerable value to UNHCR if the High Commissioner or the Office decides to use it. It means that the Office is not entirely independent, but certainly enjoys a measure of autonomy in determining its mandate and how best to provide international protection. So its primary responsibility is to provide international protection. And then, in a rather muddled paragraph, paragraph 8, amongst the protection functions which were identified in 1950, UNHCR is to promote the conclusion of refugee protection treaties and supervise their application. When we look at states, parties to the 51 Convention and states party to the 1967 Protocol, we find in these two articles, 35 of the Convention to 1 of the Protocol, we find states accepting a particular obligation vis-a-vis UNHCR. UNHCR is not a party to these treaties, of course. But in these provisions, states have undertaken to cooperate with UNHCR in the exercise of its functions and shall, they shall in particular, facilitate its duty of supervising the application of the provisions of the 51 Convention and the 67 Protocol. Now, what on earth does supervising the application of the provisions of the Convention mean? It's a very ambiguous provision. And neither the Protocol nor the Convention contains any inbuilt monitoring system. UNHCR's responsibility to supervise is accepted by states, although they may certainly have reservations about what exactly that entails. And the travaux préparatoires provide little guidance, whether we're talking about the statute or about the Convention, provide little guidance about what actually is intended. What seems clear, though, is that UNHCR is not, as we from today would recognize it, a treaty supervisory body. It doesn't claim to be, it never has done, and certainly states do not accept that it has the final authority, for example, on the meaning of words. Indeed, on matters of interpretation, it could well be argued that UNHCR is no better place than any state party to decide what terms mean and how they should be applied. And one of the challenges for UNHCR today, it seems to me, is to show that it does in fact know best. Perhaps that's going a bit too far, but I think that is what it should aspire to, to show that when it comes to the interpretation of the 51 Convention, 67 Protocol, it does actually know best. It has garnered the information, it has thought about the issues, it has analysed the problems, and this is the way that states need to go if they are effectively and in good faith to fulfil their obligations. And in that in that, fulfilling that ambition, it seems to me that process can be, indeed is, the key uh, to authority. Now, if we look at UNHCR institutionally, we find, of course, that it has no um, sort of single mechanism through which to express its views, other than perhaps by official publication. 
But it is worth recalling again that it now has over 60 years experience working with states in the provision of protection, in advising on the implementation of the convention and in the promotion of solutions. And its own statute gives it a refugee definition which is broadly equivalent to that that states have accepted. But then we think how we think about UNHCR's near global presence and we can see that unlike any other state it has necessarily considerable cross-jurisdictional experience which certainly should mean something. Before getting to the guidelines themselves I want to start again with a bit more history and which is to consider UNHCR's 1979 handbook on procedures and criteria for determining refugee status because it is the first if you like of the the modern generation of guidelines having been prepared not for internal use but for an external audience and it raises I think very interesting questions of, of provenance of standing of authority how did it come about well the 1970s were the mid 1970s were a very interesting time for protection there was established in 1975 the U- the Executive Committee Subcommittee on International Protection, and one of the first issues it grappled with was precisely determination of refugee status. And one of the first conclusions adopted by the Executive Committee was on determination of refugee status. So more and more states in the 1970s were establishing formal as opposed to ad hoc and discretionary processes for determining claims to asylum. UNHCR in 77 put a note to the executive committee on determination of refugee status and it pointed out that while the basic criteria who is a refugee were the same for all states parties the very large number of states involved the diversity of internal systems the use here of a judicial approach there of an administrative approach uh, the differences between common and civil law jurisdictions and so forth could result, said UNHCR, in discrepancies in interpretation and practice. And one state representative, I forget who it was now, um, asked that UNHCR should prepare a simple but authoritative handbook on criteria and procedures for use by governments. These were innocent days. The executive committee Julie rubber-stamped that idea. It seemed a very good idea. The next year, 1978, I'll come to 79 in a minute, um, things were moving on. The High Commissioner was able to report to uh, uh, the Executive Committee that um, an advanced copy of the English version of the handbook had been sent out to governments. And then in 1979, uh, states expressed their appreciation of the Executive Committee for publication of the, of, the, of the printed version. Now, I was looking not so long ago at the debates in the Executive Committee at this time, and they're rather interestingly inconclusive. We find a number of governments saying things very politely, oh, they'd really like to make some constructive comments on the handbook, and they would really like to see the handbook circulated for, for discussion. And the Director of Protection, I think it was Michel Moussali at the time, saying, yes, 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 of course, we'll circulate this, we are circulating this for comment and discussion. But I'm not at all persuaded that that ever actually happened. 
Um, I've certainly found no record of states formally commenting on the comment on the uh, content of the of the draft handbook, um, and in fact. In 1979-1980, the following year, um, states were saying, as if it didn't matter or if they had no concerns, that they were grateful uh, for the publication of the handbook, which was already being found to be extremely useful. And what it seems to me happened in those, di- in those times, in 77-78, was that UNHCR more or less managed to get away with an entirely in-house process, and it managed to persuade states to accept it. And I think there are one or two things. You'll find it in the preface to the handbook, which incidentally is yet now in a new issue complete with guidelines, which you can get from UNHCR if you need it. Um, the preface to the handbook makes the point that it's based on UNHCR practice, on state practice, and because it's of a general nature, it avoids all references to the literature, which is probably a very sensible mood, move. So that states could avoid being upset by critical analysis on the part of refugee scholars, if there was any at the time, and they could rest content that here we had a document that was essentially based on state practice uh, and not one that was developed uh, uh, according to the whim of this or that uh, academic or advocate. At the same time, we can see how this handbook was produced, and I think this is important for its authority, on the initiative and at the request of states members of the Executive Committee. Yes, it was based on UNHCR's accumulated knowledge, the practice of states and of UNHCR and its relations with states, on experience which the office had gained in taking part in various national refugee determination procedures. Uh, In a way, though, that allowed UNHCR to show that it was, as it were, promoting transnational consistency in decision-making, drawing on its own statutory protection and responsibility, uh, and doing so in a uh, non-confrontational way. And I think it's also interesting that the authority of the handbook in this sense has never been challenged by states. Having said that, that may well be because states know that they have never been and they are not now formally bound by uh, the handbook. And actually, if we then look beyond what states themselves say in the XCOM or elsewhere to what their courts do, then the picture gets uh, a little murkier. And courts in certain jurisdictions have been very often quite picky in their approach to the principles set out in the handbook. In a a recent article in the Journal of uh, International Criminal Justice, uh, Kate Jastrom from the University of Berkeley points out that in the USA, the handbook is hardly ever referenced now. And she adds that in uh, over 100 exclusion cases which she examined, not a single reference even in passing, was made to UNHCR's guidelines on exclusion. So that's one perspective on impact. Here in the UK, the inferior tribunals, the first-tier tribunal, even the upper tribunal, have at times been quite cavalier in their treatment of the handbook. And it does seem to me that often reflects a lack of confidence in the tribunals, a lack of understanding of international law 
and a failure to appreciate exactly what states have committed themselves to in the way of a good faith implementation of obligations. Because when we turn to the superior courts, the Court of Appeal, or the High Court, the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court, and the past the House of Lords, you find the judges much more uh, at ease with the handbook and indeed with UNHCR. In fact, the jurisdiction in this country is one of the most open to UNHCR's interventions that, that there is at the present time. And there's one case, again, some of you may, if you studied social group, be familiar with it. It's known as the joint appeals of K, that's the initial K and Fauna, F-O-R-N-A-H. We find Lord Bingham giving a classic judgment uh, on membership of a social group and looking indeed at UNHCR's guidelines. And he, he was particularly struck and impressed by the fact that these were not just written, as it were, off the top of the UNHCR's head, as it were, uh, but they had been produced following UNHCR's convening of an expert meeting on the question and to its then later uh, drafting of the guidelines. And he, he noted, yes, that UNHCR's position on the interpretation of social group um, took account of both United Kingdom and Australian jurisprudence. But he concluded, and I think you couldn't get better praise than this, that the guidelines on social group were clearly based on a careful reading of the international authorities and provide a very accurate and helpful distillation of their effect. So you've got those contrasting versions of impact, if you like. The US one, I think, is, is, is specific to the US at the present time. There was a period in which the United States courts were actually much more open to international law-based arguments. I was when I was with UNHCR, I was involved in a couple of amicus briefs which we put into the Supreme Court uh, on burden of proof, amongst other things. And I think the court was actually quite receptive. Things have changed, though, perhaps more, more under the unwitting influence of Mr. Justice Scalia, um, who actually would not be in favor of the disregard of international comparative jurisprudence where treaties are concerned. But U.S. courts seem to have got quite frightened by any reference to foreign jurisprudence or the views of the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, even though these are matters which bear upon the way in which treaties to which the UK, U.S. is a party are being interpreted. I'm hoping that that might change, and there is some precedent to think that it, it can do. So the UA, USA is, a, I think, a rather special case at the present time. It's become very parochial, which is sad. Uh, it means that uh, U.S. courts don't engage with international jurisprudence, and correspondingly, uh, courts in other countries don't engage with the U.S. either. That's a pity, because quite some interesting initiatives have come out of the U.S. in the past. But let me move on. I want to turn to the question of UNHCR's post-2002 guidelines, and in particular to consider the question of methodology. Now, in December 2013, UNHCR published guidelines on international protection number 10 on claims to refugee status related to military service. And this is where I got into hot water with UNHCR. No, I didn't actually. I didn't notice it. <laughs> but I understand that I upset them by my critique of these guidelines in an editorial in the International Journal of Refugee Law. And I took these guidelines to task not 
as uh, some in UNHCR might have supposed because I hadn't been consulted. Uh, in fact, I published enough on related issues like conscience objection that I probably just ended up repeating myself. But because it seemed to me that the guidelines were full of errors, they were inconsistent with settled UNHCR doctrine on determination of refugee status. They were worrisome when it came to methodology, including the use of sources and practice of citation. They were detached from much of the practice of states in determining refugee claims and detached from central issues familiar to refugee advocates, such as the indices of persecution. Now, there are different issues, of course. There are different views, of course, on the relations between freedom of thought, conscience and religion on the one hand, and the actions of the individual driven by his or her freedom of thought, conscience and religion on the other. And different considerations enter the picture depending very much on whether we adopt a human rights perspective or a refugee law persecution perspective. And it seemed to me that these dimensions were inadequately explored and that the end result actually provided little helpful guidance to decision makers. Now, there was a personal element, of course, because worst of all, the guidelines were guilty of plagiarism, and they pretended that an earlier set of UNHCR guidelines was actually the source of a certain definition of political opinion, which had, in fact, appeared in 1983 in the first edition of the Refugee and International Law. So there was a personal aspect to my criticism, but it, I assure you it wasn't the main point. Anyway, apparently this critique uh, produced something of a reaction in UNHCR, but some of the general suggestions which I made in this editorial seem to have carried a bit of weight, particularly those arguing for a more transparent, scholarly, and consultative approach. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, courts know that they are not bound by what UNHCR says. So methodology needs very careful consideration. And first of all, this means identifying novel protection areas with some precision. The area or the issue must be one in which guidance is evidently necessary and where clarification or development of the refugee definition or other provisions of the convention is feasible. Secondly, guidelines must, and this reflects clearly my academic background, must be soundly based in the basic principles of international law, particularly those related to the interpretation of treaties and the development of customary international law. And third, the guidelines need to recognize and closely analyze and understand, even if they don't adopt, uh, the reasoning and the approaches of national and international courts, as well as the views and practices of other stakeholders in refugee protection. Now, the guidelines are not about universal consensus, and there's no way in which UNHCR, notwithstanding its global reach, is going to be able to find some universal consensus on the meaning of words and the application of terms. But it does seem to me that, given its presence, UNHCR is potentially very well placed to produce what I'll loosely call a workable synthesis, synthesis combining the, the best law from its perspective of protection with progressive development, provided at least that it can tap into the skills of both the practitioner and the scholar, and it certainly has the network to do so. But I also argue that authority 
the necessary authority which leads to acceptance demands wide consultation and perhaps also the circulation and discussion of drafts, to which I'll come again in a moment. Now, one area which I think has attracted, which has attracted some useful attention recently has been the, the uses which UNHCR makes of national case law and to a certain extent of international case law. There's a very interesting review of the UNHCR guidelines by, uh, published since 2002 by Cecilia Bayer. And uh, she finds major discrepancies in the citation of national case law between these sets of guidelines with a clear preponderance of English language common law jurisprudence. And this, she suggests, and I think with some reason, raises what she calls legitimacy challenges. If you're only using English language common law sources, a lot of people are going to look scarce at what you propose on that basis, at least so far as the guidelines purport to provide objective guidance. I do recognize that concern. And in principle, and given UNHCR's reach again, there should be a wider range and greater awareness of what's going on in civil law jurisdictions, and in particular, in the developing world. But I think there's also another question to be asked, and it needs to be asked first. And that is, to what purpose is national law, or indeed international case law, being used? Is a balance necessary? Should we, for every common law Judgment: Should we have a civil law judgment for every developed world judgment? Should we have a developing world judgment? A balance of what exactly? Numbers? No, surely not. It's one thing if you're using case law to illuminate developments, in which case case law simply serves a, a narrative purpose and the, the net should be drawn as wide as possible if you want to present as big a picture as possible. But if the purpose is to move forward, then a critically analytical approach is needed, illustrating problems, pinpointing inconsistencies, pointing forward to solutions. Whether, and I think this is also an interesting question for Nietzsche, whether and how that Crit, ideally critical analytical approach can be fitted into what UNHCR produces guidelines as opposed to background work is far from clear. After all, UNHCR does need to maintain reasonably good working relations with governments. And if it lays about the jurisprudence of national courts in a particular country, it could find its relations worsening. Now, Cecilia Bayer nevertheless argues for what she calls increased pluralistic references to national case law. But I go back always to what I see still as the primary question. To what end? For the decision? For the reasoning? For the error? For evidence of a good or bad trend? And I think it's important to distinguish between functions. Are we interested in seeing a truly global assessment of protection standards as they evolve within refugee law tribunals around the world? I think not. There needs to be a productive tension between the, the now and the, the yet to come. And part of that involves assessing the status quo, yes, but another, no less important, involves picking out those elements which push in the direction of enhanced protection. Now, specifically with regard to the guidelines on military service, she makes another valid point about outsourcing the drafting of background papers, which is that of conflict of interest. 
if background papers which UNHCR then draws on to put together its guidelines, if they are not published and the authors are not widely known, then later commentators may well have concerns about what we used to call in UNHCR professional defamation or institutional or personal predilection. Biases, not unreasonable in themselves, but which may or may not be, be justified in the circumstances. And by contrast with the global consultations approach, by contrast with the work done in 2001-2002, in the case of the military service guidelines, we have no published background paper, no expert roundtable, no summary conclusion, no comments to consider. Now, in a recent sort of pseudo-rebuttal to my editorial in the International Journal of Refugee Law by way of introduction to the uh, military service guidelines, UNHCR assures us that extensive consultations did take place, that a call went out to some 150 academics, that a reference group was set up. So what went wrong? Greater openness, I suggest, might well have helped to avoid some of the errors that appear in the final result. But there is an advantage to not doing things in-house, as I've hinted. Outsourcing to a consultant more easily allows the critical identification of interpretive discrepancies of error and enables the UNHCR to stay on the high ground, the moral high ground, to maintain a measure of objective distance. So openness and consultation, they are the goals. And it does seem to me that in the meantime a reconsideration of the consultation imperative is in the air. Late last year and early in this year UNHCR put out draft guidelines and calls for comment. They were on prima facie recognition of refugee status, on the applicability of Article 1D of the 1951 Convention, and on the meaning of the phrase country of former habitual residence, which applies in a rather obscure context in Article 1A2 of the Convention. Now, that call for comments went out by email. I don't know how widely it went. They discovered, uh, possibly as a result of a bit of mischief-making by myself, they finally discovered how to use undisclosed recipients. Because back in the day, they had sent out an email with everyone listed. Was it in closing? I think another set of, 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 of draft guidelines. So I copied down the email list, struck out those who were dead or passed on, added a few others, and sent out my own email mischievously. Um, and UNHR realized what it was doing, and now it sends it out to undisclosed recipients. So I don't know how widely the call went out, but it did go out. I got it. And on the website, too, there was the call for comments on these these draft, these draft guidelines. And the call was addressed to what is now called all stakeholders who were asked to submit their views in writing, with UNHCR promising that they might possibly put any comments on their website, that they might post them. And frankly, I am glad, and I'm sure UNHCR is glad, that that never happened. Because one draft in particular, that on Palestinian refugees, Article 1D, uh, was so riddled with errors. It hadn't been proofread. It hadn't been spell-checked. It referred to the League of Nations when it meant the League of Arab States. Um, UNHCR could only have been embarrassed by comments that were made. Another of the uh, draft guidelines 
that on the meaning of country of former habitual residence, was apparently inspired by the practice of just one state, a major resettlement partner, yes, which had, adopt, had adopted an obscure interpretation of that provision of the 51 Convention, and by way of that interpretation was frustrating family uh, reunion in a resettlement context. Was that the best way to deal with the issue through a guideline? Or was it not, would it not have been better to lobby that state, or perhaps even to litigate the issue in the jurisdiction of that state? So not all is well by any means in the, in the area of openness and consultations, or at least in the preparatory work that leads up to consultations. Process. In her recent article on national case law, which I've already mentioned, Cecilia Baye recalls the, the process which had been adopted in the context of those global consultations on international protection in 2002-2003. But she does not expressly mention, and perhaps she wasn't aware of it, she does not expressly mention the careful control and indeed the tight rein which UNHCR kept on that process. I could certainly justify that in the light of UNHCR's autonomy, its uh, General Assembly mandate to provide international protection. But I think it's nonetheless interesting that UNHCR decided who would prepare the background papers, it assisted in their drafting, and to some extent, I wrote one of them so I know it happened a bit, it also influenced their direction and conclusion. It didn't actually write them, but it just steered them um, quite subtly and quite carefully, and not irresponsibly in my experience. UNHCR then decided who would be invited to the expert round tables which were convened to consider the papers. So it was very careful in whom it chose from amongst the stakeholders, including states, to come to this or to that round table. And again, it couldn't control the actual debate or outcome. It couldn't control the conclusions, but of course it could use its influence and did so. And again, in my experience on a couple of occasions, it did it responsibly. But no matter, in fact, because the purpose of the roundtables was not, as you might have gathered, was not indeed to draft guidelines. It was to advise UNHCR. So UNHCR maintained that another measure of distance between the, the background, the preparatory work, and what it would eventually produce as its guidelines. And it was for UNHCR to draw as it deemed appropriate on that preceding work. And there were a number of good reasons for UNHCR to adopt that approach. One of them was its concern uh, to ensure that there was participation by states there, as major stakeholders, yes, in this protection exercise. And this was an important protection exercise because in the time of High Commissioner Regatta, protection had suffered considerably under her supposedly pragmatic approach to humanitarian issues. So the ground needed to be retaken. But UNHCR was greatly concerned that the process of the consultation should not allow states as primary stakeholders to lay down markers as what we international lawyers call persistent objectors, a way, therefore, of enabling states to object to or to stop progressive development of international refugee law, and so from UNHCR's perspective to frustrate the objectives of international protection. I think this is worth bearing in mind. Um, states are keen to present their own views and to have their own views uh, adopted. 
but they are still generally reluctant to, um, to put their views in writing, apart from the United States, which does quite regularly uh, object to positions taken by the Human Rights Committee or the UNHCR. And if you want to see how states can be difficult, um, you just need to look at the uh, recent work of the International Law Commission on the expulsion of aliens. Um, I just w- came across this in my office again today. This is the background paper which the Secretariat um, of the International Law Commission produced from this subject in 2006. It is quite considerable. It's uh, 674 pages. Um, you can imagine the resources that went into the production of that document. Not, therefore, something which UNHCR can necessarily engage in every time. Um, but when the articles produced by the ILC came to be debated, we find a number of states, like Canada, the UK, and the US, going out of their way to pretend that relevant international law on expulsion hardly existed, which is actual nonsense. But there is a danger there that states may, okay, we know that they are essential partners in the process, but there is a danger that they will put down markets or seek to put down markets which frustrate the development of relevant international law. Okay, where do we go? UNHCR's future guidelines. Um, In thinking about a working model for the preparation of guidelines which will be authoritative and influential, it helps perhaps to consider the alternatives, the alternatives to avoid. Um, this is going to sound personal again, but it's actually not. Um, the so-called Michigan approach, for example, is one which tends to favour the terse and the elliptical uh, over clarity and to detach itself entirely from the real world which claims are made, decisions taken, jurisprudence developed. This is the latest set of, of Michigan guidelines on risk for reasons of uh, political opinion. Um, Substantively, it scarcely covers two pages, and you wouldn't know from looking at it that that very good scholar, uh, Catherine Dauvergne, had prepared a near 60-page critical analysis of the case law and examined alternative ways forward. Somehow that got lost in this Michigan process. Um, Reading it, too, you would wonder what exactly was going on. Um, You've come across a sentence such as the following. The scope of political opinion should not be constrained to ensure that the convention is not brought into disrepute by recognizing the refugee status of an undeserving person. What does that mean? I don't know. The scope should not be constrained. No, it means nothing to me. We might also be concerned at the inaccurate paraphrasing of Article 31, one of the Vienna Convention or the Law of Treaties. Um, that refers to interpretation in accordance with ordinary meaning to be given to the terms of the treaty. Perhaps the reference to ordinary meaning proved too much, particularly as we're then told that an opinion is a conscious choice or stance Whereas many of us, particularly if we have access to the Oxford English Dictionary, might well have thought it was what or how one thinks about something, (coughs) one's judgment or belief. So that, it seems to me, is a model to avoid. It doesn't have authority. It doesn't have a basis in jurisprudence. It doesn't have a basis in the practice of states. There's got to be a better alternative. Still, never mind. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. Let's look, then, at other treaty supervisory bodies and how they go about it. Well, let's look in particular at the Human Rights Committee. 
This is established under the 1966 Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Its functions include receiving reports from states, reviewing and reporting on them in turn, and transmitting its reports and such general comments as it may consider appropriate to the state's parties. And states can submit their own observations if they want. Now, these general comments, they form a large part of the, what the French would call doctrine, of the doctrine developed by modern treaty supervisory mechanisms. They're employed not only by the Human Rights Committee, but also by the other committees on economic and social and cultural rights, torture, racial discrimination, discrimination against women, children's rights, migrants' rights, the rights of those with disabilities, and so forth. In essence, and the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights produces a very good compendium of all these general comments, they comprise the relevant committee's interpretation of a treaty in question and are intended precisely to provide appropriate and authoritative guidance to states and other actors on the measures to be adopted to ensure full compliance. Now, how are they prepared? Again, that's up there now, so you can note it down in full. Um, it's a useful web link, which I'll come to in a minute. The Human Rights Committee does provide a useful model. It goes about preparing general comments as follows. It sets aside a half day, which it announces on its uh, agenda on the website, for general discussion in committee, which um, will often be on the basis of a note prepared by one of its members as a rapporteur to identify the issues uh, arising in connection with a particular right. The committee then invites national human rights institutions, with whom, of course, it's networking, civil society, academia, to participate and to provide written submissions. A hard, 22 hard copies. Again, the UN has financial problems. 22 hard copies and an electronic version if you want it to go up on the website. And there are also some opportunities for oral presentations. If you put in a written submission, you may get your chance to appear before the committee, and the committee may have a, an inclination to talk to you about your proposal, your comments, and so forth. So there's that process of, of discussion. And following that, the rapporteur prepares a draft of the general comment, which is given, okay, then by a first reading by the committee in closed session. So you have the open part and then, as it were, the closed part. The text is published and is open to further comment by all interested parties before being finalised in second reading. So you've got open and closed, open and closed processes. And at present, the committee is inviting comments on Article 6, Right to Life, closing date, June the 15th, if I remember rightly, and further details are on the website of the Human Rights Committee that, uh, if you just go through the ohchr.org, you'll find it quickly enough. So that's one interesting approach. Now, the committee is made up of um, elected members who serve, of course, in their personal capacity, being persons, to quote Article 28 of the Covenant, persons of high moral character and recognised competence in the field of human rights. So in that respect, UNHCR can't compete. It's not because UNHCR staff don't have a high moral character, um, but it's because of the other institutional issues in involved. They are not... Uh, they don't have the capacity, UNHCR doesn't have the capacity to involve independent elected members in any sort of exercise like this, at least at present. UNHCR is a different creature, coming from a different time. But UNHCR's views on interpretation, on progressive development, are no less in need of authority. And what might have been appropriate for confidential treatment in the past is no longer the case. Transparency, openness, accountability, 
These are today's watchwords. This is the new rules for international organizations. And of course, the constituency of interested parties, our stakeholders, is considerably broader than it was in the late 1970s when the handbook was drafted. And back in 2002 as well, the agenda for protection of which you may also have heard, uh, which was adopted by uh, the UNHCR Executive Committee and endorsed by states in their declaration in 19... Celebrating the 50th, or was it the 60th anniversary of the 51 Convention, one or the other, uh, expressly recognized the breadth, as it were, of the relevance of constituency. And we find item five of the agenda for protection referring to states UNHCR and NGOs cooperating in identifying and working on ways to ensure better, uh, better interpretation. We find it referring to UNHCR continuing to provide a forum for high-level discussions and participatory dialogue on protection issues. Uh, we find item six of the agenda calling on UNHCR to publish the background papers and summary conclusions of the roundtables uh, held in the context of the global consultations, which it duly did. That's that thick white book, Protection of Refugees, edited by Erika Feller-Volker-Turk and Francis Nicholson. It called on UNHCR likewise to produce complementary guidelines to the handbook, to organize expert discussions also involving state practitioners, whatever that means, and to continue to participate in activities on refugee law organized by states, regional organizations, and other partners, including NGOs and universities. Now this of course, has cost implications. And it may be that many of the issues for which guidelines might seem most appropriate could be better dealt with through strategic litigation. As I've mentioned, UNHCR is often involved as an intervener or as an amicus curiae um, where local law allows. There are, though, limitations to that, to the impact of such interventions, because cases very often are so fact-specific. And the scope left for UNHCR to develop a position is often very narrow, whereas guidelines have potentially uh, more breadth. But whether it's through strategic litigation or whether it's through guidelines, uh, the basic research, the scholarship, will still be required. And there are resources out there waiting to be tapped, and I would argue there is an institutional duty on the UNHCR to reach out. How to do it? I I do think the global consultations model has considerable merit. It combines in-depth research on particular issues, including, ideally, a thorough, a comprehensive analysis of case law across multiple jurisdictions, moving in different ways, doubtless. It includes a meeting of experts, drawn, we hope, from across the pool, the wide pool of uh, stakeholders. And it provides an opportunity for UNHCR then to use that work, that substantial body of work, in drafting guidelines, but with all due regard to its independent mandate to provide protection. Some of these elements can surely be adjusted to uh, modern times. Uh, Rather than putting out drafts for comment, by which time it may well be too difficult to effect major but important changes, I would suggest that UNHCR, with or without informal consultations, indicate that it's minded to prepare guidelines. This is an approach which governmental departments about to make rules or regulations will often do. They are minded to make a regulation. UNHCR indicates it's minded to make guidelines on an issue uh, which requires clarification. 
Then, assuming that there's been a comprehensive effort to engage with stakeholders, to advise them about what's going on, to wait and see what comes in. And if there is sufficient support for guidelines, what are, for example, the meaning of purposes and principles of the UN for Article 1FC, or of non-political crime for Article 1FB, or of nationality in Article 1A2 as a basis for persecution, then UNHCR might move to a next stage, commissioning an issues paper, a background paper, providing examples of the problem, different approaches, national case law again, of comparable questions coming up in related disciplines like human rights, international humanitarian law. And that's the paper that could be posted for comment with or without a summary or references onward to other jurisprudence. The UNHCR maintains a huge database of national case law uh, in its, uh, on its website RefWorld. And you might want the comment process to be subject to time limit, perhaps moderated, if so, by whom? Interesting questions. But then the whole could serve as the basis, as the approach in the global consultations did in the past, as the basis uh, for UNHCR's drafting, perhaps with some further comment on particular wording or approaches under consideration. In some cases, the issue may well be of such interest to governments and other stakeholders that it would justify an expert meeting in the global consultations model. Uh, but needless to say, such meetings ought to be governed by the same principles of openness and transparency and supported by background work that's representative and meets the highest standards of scholarship. And on the issue of scholarship, it seems to me there is no excuse whatsoever for slipshod work. Now, UNHCR, I know, is keen to hear how its processes for drafting interpretive guidance and progressively developing the law can be improved. We know that its authority and the legitimacy of its efforts are tied to process, and what we need is a process fit for the 21st century, which acknowledges the right of stakeholders, that's to say all of us, to participate, and which is characterized by openness and transparency. So you know, and I know, where to write. Thank you. Wednesday is our last seminar in this series, uh, where Phil Orchard will be presenting on global IDP policy, and to consider the extent to which global policy on internally displaced persons is in some way a parallel process to global refugee policy, or is there an analogy between the two processes? forward slash connect.